Today's guest is Tom Goodman. Tom authored the book Digital Darwinism, and he's the co-founder of All We Have Now. Tom regularly speaks and writes about technology and its role in society, looking backwards in time as well as into the future. Tom's also got a new book coming out called Digital Darwinism 2. Tom and I pontificate around the frustrations of technology and why it gets in the way of, of the improvement of society and why do we get distracted by it. You know, I think you'll learn that while we might both voice frustration sometimes. It's always fueled in empathy and optimism on how we can do better and what we can do better, and it should uh, lift society as a whole. So please welcome Tom. This was a really fun discussion. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Looking forward to this. We seem to be in an age where we have more information at our fingertips than ever before. We have a, a, a rear view mirror that gets clearer and clearer. And we have folks like yourselves and others that that are publishing books and, and content that that connect the dots between these major milestones of change that we've had and extrapolate into the future as far as what will happen next. Yet it feels like we're getting worse at learning from history. And I don't know if that's just me and my own frustration. Do you think that we're getting better at learning from history? I think I think I agree with you, actually. I think um, we're obsessed with this idea that everything must be different. You know, we're obsessed with the fact that we live in these completely chaotic, you know, volatile, uncertain, fast-changing times. And I'm not entirely sure how true that is. I think um, the strange thing about 24-hour news cycles and literally consuming news like this with an algorithmic feed is we lose any sense of perspective. We lose any sense of time. We lose sense of geography. And you tend to get more famous by making outrageous proclamations about how extreme things are or how different things are. And I think history is a wonderful teacher to us. Like we can look at things like the first or the second industrial revolutions and realize that pretty much all of the patterns that we have, the sort of social disconnection, um, this fear of the unknown, uh, people making vast sums of money, battles with regulations, sort of struggles to deploy technology, distractions about things that we think are going to be big and not. Like this is all very much repeated through history. And I'm certainly not saying that things are identical. You know, the advent of electricity is not a perfect representation of what we have now, but it's a very good one. And we'd be really wise to learn from those past movements and uh, take a lot of reassurance from them, actually. I mean, when the bicycle was introduced, everyone thought it was going to change society and women were going to flee men and run away. (laughs) When the factories were introduced, obviously, various people thought it would lead to massive job losses. You know, people talked about how everyone would be bored because there wouldn't be any work to do. Um, So time and time again, we see very much the same themes coming up. Um, and we should absolutely be learning from it. And we should also be focusing on on the few things that are different, because there are there are things that are different this time. Yeah, it sounds all a lot of that does sound familiar. And it feels like, you know, what you just said applies to society as a whole. But then there's this bubble within the technology world that it seems like it's that much even worse wanting to create the wheel. You know, it's it's you know, I, I can't tell you how it's funny. I feel like we share this. I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but I end up coming off maybe a little salty uh, to, to individuals, you know, in my view, but it's really just fueled by optimism and empathy and the fact that like, why are we wasting our times with these these silly distractions when we could be, you know, 
doing better and honestly, like getting back to the roots of what we're trying to do. I mean, I, I can't tell you how frustrating it's been to see, you know, all these software vendors and marketing companies, they, they, they keep talking about, you know, reinventing how you're going to talk to the consumer, but yet that you get farther and farther away from the consumer where it's like going back to the very first time anyone sold anything when there was no technology, you, we, of course you listen to your consumer and you listen to them. And it seems that, that we're just technology is getting in the way. I mean, it's incredibly true. And I agree with you on all fronts. Um, I mean, the first thing is you, one does end up coming across apparently quite grumpy or salty or pessimistic or, um, you know, people think I'm a sort of contrarian or something. There are all these negative emotions that, that come up when people try and question these things. What for me has happened, like you say, is we've become so in love with technology and technology companies in particular have got so much power like we've really forgotten what it's like to be a human. Like we've forgotten what the real problems that people face are today. You know, we've forgotten what it's like to be a normal human being in this day and age. And I think um, it's vital that we are incredibly informed about technology, but we need to sort of layer through that understanding across people's lives and then work at the intersection between the two. You know, I, I love what technology makes possible, but I think something like the metaverse is a complete distraction. Like I think this idea that we can replicate all of the faults of physical retail, you know, almost perfectly within the metaverse is a good example of, of the sort of lack of imagination and the lack of empathy that's out there. Yeah, and the fact that so much of the talk is that and just seeing these virtual shopping shopping aisles and nonsense when there could be real talks about virtual reality and its application to therapy and to yeah. education and all of these other things. And it just gets distracted by this nonsense, it feels. Everything has to be simple these days, I think. That's the hard mm. thing is, you know, we do live in this world where people want to become a bit notorious or where people want a bit of fame. And you tend to get that by saying, you know, the metaverse will change everything or disrupt or die. And if you try and layer through the nuance of, you know, what is the metaverse? Something like virtual reality is a big part of it. Where can that be used? How is this interesting? You know, you end up with headlines like, you know, the metaverse isn't quite defined, um, but virtual reality has some application somewhere and we should focus on those. And um, that doesn't make a good tweet. You know, that doesn't get um, that doesn't get you a speaking slot on a stage. It doesn't. And, and you know, I just wonder what can we do? to to improve this because you studied architecture right yeah yeah and i mean that industry has suffered a lot of the same problems right there's such great designs that are out there you can make people's lives so great yeah. but then you have these developers that are out there just building these awful monstrosities that <laughs> no one wants and it's a similar pattern that's happening to te te technology which is also funny because since the beginning of time, everyone in technology, like anytime you bring a pattern from outside the technology world, it, it seems like this crazy <laughs> new thing that, that no one's thought of. So, so the same thing happens in other places. It seems like a very human, human block that's getting in the way. And I, I don't know if you've, you've thought about ways that we can improve it. I think we need a time of nuanced debate and we need a time on focusing on people and challenging conventions and, I think, I mean, construction is a good um, literal example, but also a metaphor where the world of construction is full of chronic labor shortages. It's full mm. of archaic planning processes. It's full of, you know, really difficult problems to solve with zoning and various different un sort of fundamental underpinnings of it. And as a result, like you say, we're making buildings that don't really work for people. And we have problems with the location of buildings. We have problems with things like parking. So we have all 
one of those very pragmatic, sort of real, messy, dirty, human process governance problems. And then we have this sort of wonderful distraction of things like 3D printed homes or laminated timber construction, which represent the sort of future and how things will one day be. And in reality, those those sort of future technologies are probably not going to be here for a really long time. And the skill, I think, is actually taking a lot of the technologies that we have now and using that to rethink the more fundamental and boring problems we have to do with things like zoning or financing. But somehow no one really wants to do that. Like um, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is to try and introduce myself as a sort of nowist, you know, because the Mm. world is sort of full of futurists and futurists go around saying, you know, one day drones are going to deliver everything. You know, one day nanorobots will crawl through your veins. You know, one day you'll have brain computer interfaces. And it's, it's helpful to know a bit about that and it's quite easy to have a career as a futurist because you sort of go around saying "Ooh, you know everything's going to be amazing but it's very unhelpful you know for most people in most people's jobs you know to think that you know robots are going to do everything and drones are going to deliver things you you can't do anything about that and i think people quite like having presentations that you can't do anything about because it relieves them of the guilt of not doing it you know it means they can sort of leave that presentation and go back to their monthly planning excel spreadsheet and sort of forget about it but they've been entertained and what i'm trying to do is is a sort of movement called nowism where we're actually aware of the broad trend lines in what's changing aware of the profound technologies that are on the horizon but very much to focus on the now you know so take an industry like e-commerce you know, how can you make the, the how can you how can you buy clothes that fit? You know, how can you reduce the return rates because everyone's into vanity sizing and sizes are different across countries? And you know, how can you take uh, the products that we've solved before and make them um, in a way where the packaging is designed for an e-commerce environment? Like there are so many really exciting problems to be solved with all of the technology that we have now. But but somehow I think that area in the middle, you know, my hope is it's commercially viable for me to be in that space. But I'm slightly worried that, you know, people like today and they like the future, but tomorrow is a little bit more challenging for people. Yeah, I mean, it's the macro version of what happens in a lot of our households. You know, I'll admit it myself. (laughs) I've got my boxes of gadgets that are just sitting and and that I've never really used because new gadgets are really fun, right? And and it's exciting. And you don't want to solve those those immediate problems that we have. And you know, I it's funny. I also I feel like you know in our in our technology world, there's not. I don't know, I think there's not enough philosophy and I'll ironically use myself as an example, mm-hmm. you know, for the, you know, I'm 20 plus years in now, it probably, and I've dabbled in philosophy and sociology, but not until mm-hmm. the last, let's say five, six years, have I really started to take a broader view. And, and there's probably a lot of that repeated within this, this little bubble of technology. And I, but I think people seem to think that, studying something like philosophy or psychology or how society changes is a bit frivolous especially in america actually, even the act of thinking is somehow considered you know like time that's not productive mm. and i tried to spend a lot of time really simplifying things like i tried to spend a lot of time looking at how people behave like talking to people listening to people and that seems to be quite unusual really like i don't think it's that hard really to predict many elements of the future you know, like um, if you bought a voice speaker, like if you bought a sort of Amazon Echo or a Google Home, within about two weeks of using it, you could quite quickly realize it wasn't a particularly good way to do most things. You know, you, you could realize this idea that you're going to walk home and be, you know, Alexa, book me a holiday to 
um, Ibiza next week. It was it was never going to happen because we need to see things and we need to um, sort of read things and we need to digest things. We, to explain the size of a sofa on voice commerce was never going to make it a plausible way to, to buy a sofa, for example. And I really think that, that thinking will get us everywhere. Like, like thinking and being truly empathetic, being... Not not negative, but being discerning, not being contrarian, but having the guts to ask the difficult questions, not being skeptical, but being cynical. These are the sort of areas where we really, really need to sort of focus. And I think somehow it's a bit unfashionable to do that. And I don't, I don't really understand why. Yeah. And I keep looking at like, I keep coming back to the human. I've, I've recently started yeah. exploring just different frameworks for addiction recovery. Because I find <laughs> many times pe- people are addicted to their own thoughts. They're they're addicted to the way that we've done things. I mean, Jesus, we yeah. still have fax machines. But, you know, I even looked at the, uh, the framework of it, it goes from a, first, you have to have awareness of the problem, then you acceptance of the problem, and then responsibility for it. And then you start taking action. And it kind of feels like, now we're in this point, work, whether you believe it or not, people are, are writing about the fact that we're in a fourth industrial revolution. And so it feels that we're more aware than we ever have been, I think. But I don't mm. know that the responsibility and the action is really weaving its way into society as a whole. I don't think so at all. That's a really useful framework to use, actually. I've never thought about it in that way. I think in a way we're so aware. Like we've, we're given so much information and we're told that everything is different and uh, I think the motivations behind people that say this stuff, you know, they're, they're not people with bad intent. But it goes back to what I said before, you know, you get much more famous if you make outlandish predictions. You know, today, if you were to tweet that you think oil is going up to three hundred dollars, you know, you wouldn't do as well as if you tweeted it went up to a thousand dollars. And I think we're almost in this sort of arms race to get more attention by being more outlandish. You know, so if you can be the person that, that talks about the fact that disruption is definitely going to destroy your business sooner than you think you get a lot more um, interest coming your way than if you're reassuring and say you know you know what there are probably 90% of the world's industries that don't need to change that much or the ways that they need to change are actually based on better data structure and they're based on better excel spreadsheets and they're based on better data governance and they're based on better conversations about the data they need like like somehow that's not sort of sexy enough to get people's attention um you you almost feel like you're in this world of this sort of status quo full of people saying oh you know we've seen this before and it didn't really change that much and it's full of people saying oh my god everything you know is useless you know, um, this will change everything. And finding a way to bring those two hemispheres together, I think is really hard, actually. I think sort of finding a practical implication of some things out there is is not an easy thing to do commercially. No, it's not easy. And 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 I guess what folks do instead is the the wonderful approach of staying exactly the same way they are, but then <laughs> just getting an expensive PowerPoint presentation for strategy every year or so, and then not taking action. Yes, yeah, so I see a lot of the sort of veneer of change. You know, so right. if you are a massive, I don't know, say you're a bank, you know, as a good example, you're a retail bank with tens of thousands of outlets across the country. You know, you probably have a core banking system which is built on technology from the 1950s somewhere. It probably fails sometimes. Um, you've probably built this whole system of middleware and protocols and backup systems to manage the fact that your core, you know, is pretty archaic. 
And you face two choices, either to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to completely redo the whole system, or you can kind of do a press release about how you're the first bank to open the metaverse. Or you can have one of your branches in, you know, near, near San Jose has like a pepper robot in the foyer. Or, you know, you, you can do these sort of gestures of innovation that you can use to put in your shareholder presentations or your investment decks. But actually, the real change that needs to happen is it doesn't look as good. You know, it, it's... Um, it's something that you, you can't really describe to people. But that's the change that really needs to happen. And it's a little bit frustrating, actually. It's a little bit frustrating to realize how slow these companies are to adopt more profound technologies in deeper ways. If, yeah, not just a little frustrating, very frustrating. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, when I was preparing for us to talk, you know, I was thinking about the rate of change. And I, for one, I know I'm guilty of, of talking about the rate of ch- change getting faster and faster. But now I'm kind of thinking about it from the lens of is it the rate of distractions that's getting faster and faster versus the rate of change? And I'm curious your thoughts on the rate of change. No, I think that's that's exactly the 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 words to use. We went through this remarkable period. Uh, I was lucky enough to work very closely with Nokia around about the years 2006 to 2008, and in that time, the smartphone came into our life. The App Store developed, um, 3G wireless kind of spread. Very quickly across the globe and that had a profound effect on some parts of our life you know it sort of led to the proliferation of sites like tinder that changed how people met their life partners it led to the creation of apps like um, uber or um, sort of whatsapp um, it fundamentally changed the ways that telecoms company made money from data, not from voice. It was a huge sort of shift that happened. You know, between about 2006 and 2011, pretty much every celebrated company that we talk about today, you know, whether it's Alibaba or Tencent or whether it's Airbnb, whether it's uh, DoorDash, you know, pretty much all of those um, exploded into that time. But since 2012, we've kind of seen nothing. And I really do mean nothing. I mean, you know, Snapchat was just about at the end of that. You could say that TikTok is a big deal, but TikTok is basically a social network, a bit like Vine or, or Snapchat. We've seen nothing. So this idea that somehow everything is different today and that we're behaving in extraordinary ways just isn't true. And I liked what you said about the fax machine before, actually, because, again, a lot of the simplistic discussion is based on the idea that this new technology comes along and it changes everything and the old thing dies. You know, it's based on the idea that we have voice interfaces and then we abandon our keyboards or we have um, sort of 5G and then we sort of abandon, you know, fiber to the home. And actually pretty much every technology ever out there um, is very much sort of accumulative. You know, we, we still live in an era of coins and notes and checks and credit cards, as well as having, you know, Venmo and PayPal and as well as having sort of Bitcoin and other slightly um, extravagant ways to pay each other. And I think in our need for simplicity, in, in, in our absolute need, it seems, for everything to be black or white and binary, we presume that the new thing comes along and it kills all of the old things and it happens very quickly. It's just not true. I mean, we live in a world now where there's, I think there's 17 different types of electrical plug socket in the world. If you go to a country like Brazil, even Brazil doesn't operate on the same voltage and the same sort of frequency for its power supply. Like these things take a long, long, long time to become sort of simple and to become uniform. But again, you know, it's hard to get noticed saying things are complicated. You have to sort of say, you know, this is going to happen and therefore do this. 
Yeah, and it's funny about that era where that you talked about that that when um, mobile really started kicking up. That's when I I heard so many executives they they said the equivalent of oh we need to buy mobile right like like we need mobile in our strategy and, yeah. and it's kind of like right now when people are saying uh, let's buy metaverse go down to the store and go buy me some metaverse for my strategy and yeah. it's that same pattern that gets keep it keeps getting repeated. All of these technologies are out there, actually. I think, um, you know, they're, they're very profound, but they're quite vague. You know, people talk about artificial intelligence as if you can sort of go on, you know, Amazon.com and buy a box of artificial intelligence and then you sort of open it up and give it to your staff or something. You know, everything from um, artificial intelligence to automation to cloud computing to you know, the metaverse or Web3 or whatever you want to call these things. They're all sort of philosophies, really. They're all ways of thinking about the way that you construct things. They're all, you know, environments in which things are possible. They're not They're not sort of very specific bits of technology you can use. And like you say, I get very, very frustrated, just like the mobile thing. You know, it's the year of mobile was, was every year for about 10 years, and no one really knew what it was. People just took their existing print ads and they'd sort of stick them on a ad server that said, it to mobile and I, I genuinely believe we live a really fascinating period of time and I think that we have all of the tools that we need at the moment to do incredible things and it would almost seem like a sort of a gesture of comedy to go to a company and say you know what's your mobile strategy today because the assumption is that they've already nailed it but actually you know if you want to get a mortgage today it's almost impossible to do it without meeting someone face to face or having a phone call you know, I'm surprised that there aren't companies that realize that chat applications exist and maybe that's quite a good way to triage people's inquiries. It's impossible to extend your car rental period through most mobile apps with most um, car rental companies. We really need to get very excited about the things that we've already moved on from because we still haven't made the most of them. Yeah, you know, the um, and I'm surprised that we haven't seen a little bit more learnings over the past couple of years. Back to your black and white point, you know, there's this, you know, our, our office is dead, you know, or is everyone going yeah. back to the office and there's no, or what's, what's, yeah. you know, how do we get back to where we were versus what's next? And, you know, yeah. we've been a remote company for 16, no, 18 years or so at this point. And people were like, oh, well, so nothing, nothing changed for you guys. But like, we met all the time. We met our clients all the time in person. We collaborated in person. We had actual workshops rather than Miro. Well, Miro is wonderful. Like, you know, not having a, a, a an in-person workshop is killing me. You know, like being in front of a whiteboard with people, I don't think it's going to change. And I love that lens that you use, which is what's not going to change in the yeah. future. You know, and and, and um, one thing that bums me out a little bit when I think about what's not going to change. And people talk about decentralization that's happening, mm-hmm. whether or not that's going to happen. One thing that's not going to change, I feel like, are certain power structures and mm-hmm. and certain, you know, um, consolidations of that power. And that worries me when people, that they, they're almost getting too optimistic that things are going to be fully decentralized. The power is going to be on our hands and, like, you know, what's not going to change. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, if you can expand on, on things that... Um, are not going to change? I mean, um, essentially, the things that don't change, I mean, human nature doesn't change. We, we think somehow that because we have a smartphone, we've rewired the way that we think. Um, but the core elements of what it's like to be a human are not in any way different. I think in, in many places, technology exaggerates them. 
you know, so the behavior of people on social media is a sort of exaggeration of tribe building. You know, dating websites are an exaggeration of our need to sort of procreate. And I think quite often what we should be aware of is technology is kind of amplifying human faults in a way. Mm. So we're, I often think the future is not that hard to predict because human nature is quite easy to predict. Um, I mean, the other thing that doesn't really change, you know, legislation and regulation doesn't change that quickly. Governance doesn't change that quickly. Um, education doesn't change that quickly. We may have taken um, schools and put iPads in every kid's hands, but the things that we're teaching kids are in no way a reflection of the skills and the knowledge they need for the future. So you, it's almost easier to assume that nothing's changing and then find little moments where it is. And I think the tendency is for people to go the other way around and to you know, fill presentations full of all the things that are changing without recognizing what's not. I used to have this idea with my company called a change safari. You know, there was this whole movement to go out to Silicon Valley and to meet you know, people from Facebook and Google and talk to them about the future. You know, the, the change safari is the opposite where you just you know, get out of your house and cycle or drive down the road and go to a shopping mall. You know, how have um, retailers changed since the internet happened? Most of them haven't done anything. You know, some of them will have a little decal in the window saying you can also shop online from H&M.com. You may go to a store and see like a price tag and at the bottom of it, it says, you know, also available in XXXL, you know, online. But no one's no one's done anything beyond that. Um, you can go to a hotel and check in and you realize they still need to sort of swipe your credit card about three times every time you do anything. You can fly with an airline and see that they're still using a dot matrix printer to uh, print out the flight sort of details. And when you say things like this, again, even my tone, it sounds quite miserable. It sounds like I'm sort of full of the <laughs> fact that life is crap. But I'm just saying, like, in everywhere you look are these amazing opportunities to improve things. Go to a school. How can schools be rethought? Go to a parking garage and rethink what a parking garage could be. Go to a, a gas station and think about the future of gas stations in the world of EVs. It's very, very exciting when you look at the things that could happen that are not. Yeah, you know, if I if I come back to that whole like the frameworks for kind of personal improvement, it's what you're talking about sounds a little bit like just mindfulness, right? Mindfulness as mm-hmm. a society and, and as industry is just to kind of take that breath to say, what is good? You know, what what mm-hmm. what is strong that, that I'm gonna be able to build upon rather than just frantically being distracted by things. And and to your point of the 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 safari and back to your point of people. And maybe it's worse here in in the states. People not leaving the time to think and and feeling like that's okay. I know I for one I've I've had to tell folks on our team like, go for a walk during the middle of the day. You know <laughs> to think. You know you can yes. think about this problem. You don't need to like. And it's not just your exercise time, but like if you need to go like be in the woods to think about this mm-hmm. problem. And and I feel like that it almost feels foreign to a lot of people to do that. And maybe we just need a lot more of that across the board. I think so. it's um, rude of me to make this generalization. And my career has mainly been in the US for the last 10 years. But I think the wonderful thing about America is it's a country based on productivity. It's based on hard work. It's based on sort of grift and increasingly based on hustle. And I think action is incredibly important, as is optimism. But it's almost a society which is so much based on either people being very proud of what they've accomplished in terms of hours or also quite defensive mechanisms where people... You know, especially in a, in, a, in a sort of corporate environment, people are very, very keen to show how busy they are. 
Um, and sometimes they're keen to share how busy they are when they're not, and they're just sort of sending emails at five o'clock in the morning for no reason. And sometimes it's that there is this genuine sense that a good day is one where you were in nine Zoom meetings, where you replied to 15 emails, where you added seven new items to the status report. And I used to sit in meetings with status reports, and it would have sort of, you know, 54 different line items. And maybe 24 of them would be future projects that haven't happened, 10 things would be sort of proactive initiatives. And at no point did anyone really go through that and go, you know, which of these things really matter? You know, do we do we have to sort of design the party invite for um, the annual sales meeting and to turn that into seven different projects about finding designers and briefing them? You know, or could we just make do with an invite which is a fairly custom one, you know, in the right font? And I think, um, I mean, you've mentioned this a few times, but we live in a world where there is so many things that are possible. And there's so much stuff that can be done. Two things happen. One is we prioritize things that are really easy and quick to do that don't matter. You know, so making a mobile, making a smartwatch app, you know, used to be the sort of classic brief that I would get. It's pretty easy to do. You can do it without that much risk. You don't need that much departmental buy-in, but it probably doesn't matter. So we tend to focus on things that are easy to do that don't matter. And we also sort of focus on things that kind of just give the illusion of, of progress, like anything that results in a kind of um, a ta-da moment is, is prioritized. And often these companies are actually dealing with one or two projects that maybe would take a little bit longer, maybe a little bit more risky, maybe require a bit more capital investment, but they would profoundly change the future of that company or their clients. And those are always the ones that, that never happen because um, you know it's a bit daunting and because it may require some thought. It may, may require six months of not actually producing something because you need to talk to people and listen and think. And I think this sort of reflexive need to sort of demonstrate productivity is very damaging. How dare you attack my country? You go back to the <laughs> queen and you tell her that we won the revolution. <laughs> I mean, I'd actually say England is, is the opposite, and England is full of a level of thought and self-doubt and procrastination that means that nothing happens. So there definitely is, uh, I think a place like, you know, Scandinavia is quite interesting. I think they do a good job of balancing mm. the thinking and the action. So Maybe we should rejoin the empire and then we'll have a nice balance <laughs> of, of philosophy and actually getting things done. Uh, but I mean, people do, like, that's, they, you talk about human nature, and I feel like human, they do want to, we do want to do things that matter. We want to accomplish things that matter. Maybe, maybe the problem is that we're out in the zeitgeist, things that we're, we're told things that matter don't really, right? Like people think yeah. that, you know, working on social media is changing the world, right? Or like, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe Zuckerberg feeling that he's changing the world for the better is, is a good example of it, but I... <laughs> I am salty towards him, so. <laughs> Means it. No, you're right, actually. For some reason, things have become very sort of fashionable. You know, if you, mm. if you work on a content marketing campaign or you work with influencers or you work on a newsletter or something, that's considered to be sort of, you know, exciting sort of techie work. You know, if you're someone that redesigns the packaging or if you're someone that helps um, create a product that lasts longer, if you're someone that helps with the sizing of clothes being more accurate, if you're someone that creates a, a supply chain which is more dynamic, if you can find a way to, you know, check on the provenance of items that you're procuring. I know that, that's all considered a bit unsexy at the moment. And I think um, in a way that's our problem is we, we, we're so keen to demonstrate the world that we're sort of techie and that we get you know mobile and we know what blockchain is that we end up doing quite a lot of fanciful things that don't really matter and in this age now where everyone is talking about you know do we work from home or do we work from the office 
it seems like completely the wrong question, actually. Mm -hmm. Where we work should not be the most important thing about our job. If you talk to people who sort of study the psychology of work, the biggest factor in job satisfaction is not actually the colleagues you work with. It's that you sense a sense of progression towards a meaningful goal. You know, for most people, if they are trying to accomplish something that matters and if they make a clear sign of progress, they feel great about their job. And I think that feels true when you hear that. So we'd be much better off framing these conversations about how do we make sure that people feel a sense of progress? Like how do people feel that they're working towards something that matters? And that doesn't necessarily need to be that they're changing the world or that they're, you know, stopping climate change. It could just mean that they designed, you know, a really, really good newsletter template. It could be that they were responsible for developing a new product, which made millions of dollars. And I think that's a much better lens to look at our sense of um, satisfaction. In a way, we've almost gone the wrong way where people seem to be satisfied because they've got no commute anymore or people seem to be satisfied because you know they don't have to talk to people from accounts anymore. <laughs> and that seems like a, it seems like a sort of backwards way to go about it to me. Absolutely does. Could not agree more. So I'd like to, to finish on something positive. Um, well, there's yeah. been lots. Like I said, this yeah. is all driven from optimism and empathy, right? Absolutely. And, and yeah. so if we take kind of um, take our own medicine and we look back at history, you know, there's from the printing press to water to electricity to, I mean, from water to steam to electricity, there's always been strife after, after change. There's, you know, there's been Luddites. Maybe there's a new generation of Luddites these days, but ultimately there, I think that the chart goes up and to the right. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, do you agree with me? You know, is this, we're going to get through this period of change and, and, or a period of distraction and kind of find our roots and find what's, what's important. There is a very, very clear trend line that shows every time a new technology comes along, people worry about the social effects. People think they'll lose their job. People think that the ruling classes will abuse them. People think that what they held on to from before will be taken away from them. And every single technology from the printing press, like you mentioned, to the loom, to the ATM, to the laptop, has generally made people have jobs which are far better than ever before. This sounds a little bit obnoxious, especially at this time, but generally speaking, we have luxury problems. You know, like a bad day in the office doesn't mean that, you know, our kid got trapped in a coal mine. You know, a bad day at the office doesn't mean that we lost an arm in a loom. Like a bad day in the office today is normally that a project got cancelled or um, someone says something mean to me in a meeting or I thought was mean. So I think the more that we progress, the more we focus on a similar number of problems that we think are as big as they've ever been before. But the reality is having, having automation, generally speaking, will likely move us to jobs where we can think more. Having more information processed by computers will probably give us more um, insights to work with. Having an environment where it's easier to do prototyping because of 3D printing will probably lead to better designs. It's it's really hard to be negative about it. I think um, when it comes to the world of work specifically, and when it comes to all of these tools that we have, 
it can only mean that planes fly more you know efficiently and that more people are sat on them which means that they do less environmental destruction like it can only mean that cars route themselves to locations um in ways that reduce the emissions it can only mean that hospitals can process people that are sick faster um it can only mean that we have more data to make better decisions with i think there are societal things which are somewhat different i think our relationship with technology and how we consume news and how we have learned to distrust and not like each other i think that's a huge Huge problem, but when you apply technology to the world of work, all I can see are positive things. There are, there, you know, it creates new problems. It creates problems to do with outsourcing and global workforces. Like it creates problems to do with sort of uh, so much data that we don't know what to do with it. But all of those problems can be dealt with. I think. Yeah, I mean, if you take a step back, we've gone from having black lung to like. Oh, I sit in a chair too much on a day. It's <laughs> yeah. the big problem, yeah. right? Like, oh, my glutes are kind of tight because I sit in a in a chair for too much during the day. And again, it sounds quite hard, you know, as a sort of white straight man. Like, if you talk about these things in a dismissive way, people are quite quick to say that you say these things from a position of privilege. But the reality is that people did used to die in mines, and people did used to die of lead poisoning, and people did used to lose limbs, and people did used to sort of die in Victorian workhouses. And, you know, generally speaking, our worst days today are still better than the best days that most people on the planet ever lived. So I could not agree more. And I'm looking forward to your next book. Um, <laughs> I loved your first one. So I'd love to finish on what's the best advice that you've ever received? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. All the better. I actually two bits of advice. One is there's a huge thing called cultural permission. Um, so my probably my favorite boss I've ever worked with a guy called Kevin Allen. He would basically set you up to be the biggest and the best person you could be in a meeting. Um, so if you create an environment where you expect people to thrive um, and where you give them a sense of support and you expect them to be brilliant, they probably will be. Like almost everyone is brilliant. They just may not realize it. So expect people to be brilliant and give them the room to do that. And the second thing is just really think through what it's like to be in other people's positions. You know, quite often in meetings, people are talking too much because they're nervous, not because they're arrogant. Quite often people have a sort of a sense of boisterousness and arrogance. And actually that probably just means they're a bit uncertain with themselves. You know, quite often you may show people creative work in a meeting and they hate it. And it's actually because they're worried that their kid's being bullied in school. So the act of just spending a lot of time thinking, you know, what's this person really thinking about? How important is this meeting to them? What are their fears? You know, how can I help them through their day? That way of thinking will get you far further than the quality of the work you present and how well you present it, I think, often. That's great. Back to the empathy. And to anyone yeah. out there that, that might hear Tom or myself that we come off a little salty or contrarian, it's because we can we can do better and we can do it now and, and we don't it need really it. Nothing, nothing should be in our way, right? We can do it. Absolutely. Everything could be amazing. We have all the tools that we need. We are a remarkable, ingenious, inventive sort of species of people with the most amazing toolkits. We can connect with anyone on the planet. You can give an iPad to a kid anywhere on the planet and they'll be informed with everything that's ever been written. We live in this amazing age and any sense of um, pessimism or frustration or saltiness just comes from the delta between what we see and what we could be seeing. But I'm really confident that we'll close that gap. Same. Tom, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Technology should serve vision, not set it. 
At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com forward slash podcast. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.